Well, brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And good morning to you. Welcome to Community Bible Church. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. We're going to get back into our study of John here. John chapter 1, verse 14 is where we'll be heading this morning. The Christmas season is upon us, as you know very well. In the providence of God, we have arrived here at the text of John 1, verse 14. A text that Pastor John MacArthur says is the most concise biblical statement of the incarnation and therefore one of Scripture's most significant verses. God took on humanity, he says. The infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible, and he says the creator entered his creation. Leon Morris says, in one short, shattering expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity, that the very word of God took flesh for our salvation. And when the apostle John arrives at John 1.14, he's a man ready to celebrate the physical birth of the God of the universe into his own creation, that is the Lord Jesus Christ here in, on the earth in Bethlehem. For John, this is a birthday party text. It is an incarnation celebration text. He's overwhelmed, he's amazed, he's astonished by Jesus' humility and glory that he bursts out, he bursts forth in birth exclamation language saying, and the word became flesh. The simplicity of these words contrasted with the magnitude of the glory they declare creates a perfect and powerful paradox for us to consider. Brothers and sisters, this is the great birthday expression, the, the greatest birthday expression, I should say, that the world has ever known. We celebrate birthdays. We honor life that's come into the world. How much honor, attention, consideration, interest, and awareness must we give to the physical birth of the God of the universe? What about Jesus' birth must thrill your soul? Is Christmas just another holiday on the calendar? Another day off work? Are the presents under the tree your greatest delight? How well do these words in our text today sit well in your heart? The words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Are you keenly aware that Jesus' physical birth is the basis on which you receive spiritual rebirth? Do you understand that your eternal life is conditioned on Jesus being birthed into this world, living a sinless life, and dying a death in your place on the cross at Calvary. This thought, the thought of God leaving heaven to be born on earth to save sinners, weighed extra heavy on the heart of James Irwin in 1971. In 1971, James Irwin was the lunar module pilot for NASA's Apollo 15 mission to the moon, where he and David Scott logged 295 hours in space and spent nearly three days on the surface of the moon. James Irwin commented on the glory of God's creation, saying, As we got further and further away, the earth diminished in size. Finally, it shrank to the size of a marble, the most beautiful you could imagine. That beautiful, warm, living object looked so fragile, so delicate, that if you touched it with a finger, it would crumble and fall apart. Irwin says, Seeing this has to change a man. At least one man was changed by this awesome sight. James Irwin himself. It seems that the grace of God caused James Irwin to be born again on the moon. Where he was raised in a Christian home on earth, James ran from God for years until God graced James with salvation on the surface of the moon as he looked down onto the tiny speck that is earth. Of the 12 astronauts who walked on the moon, James Irwin was the first to die in 1991. His enduring contribution to humanity, however, will not be his moonwalk in 1971, but these words spoken to him upon his return from the moon when James Irwin said, God walking on the earth is the most important thing, more so than men walking on the moon. You're here in John 1, where the Apostle John is preparing the hearts and minds of his audience to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they will have life in his name which is John's purpose statement from John 20, 31. John wants his readers to believe and obey Jesus Christ. To arrive at belief, John will share in his gospel seven of Jesus' most important signs, his most important miracles. Before John shares these signs, John takes time to declare in the most spectacular terms here in the prologue, Jesus is God. In front of us, we have an 18-verse prologue, which is essentially or is essential, I should say, and necessary for readers to arrive at belief in Jesus, which is the author's intent. Belief in Jesus demands full recognition, however, of his person. You must know and accept into your heart, having been given this by God, that Jesus himself 
is God. It's here in the prologue that John goes out of his way to drive this point home. Jesus is the Logos, the very word of God, even the creator of all things. He is co-equal, co-existent and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as we'll see today, what makes Jesus unique is his physical birthday in Bethlehem when he left the glories of heaven and the word became flesh. So let's read that prologue together now and spend our time focused today on Jesus' physical birthday, the incarnation of the Son of God, which is the source of our eternal salvation. John says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him but as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were birthed, that is to say they were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were birthed of God spiritually. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he was birthed before me, he existed before me. And for of his fullness we have all received, and that grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. Jesus is God, friends. This is the absolute truth. John is declaring plainly the most important truth that you will ever come to believe in this life. And believe you must, because unbelief is rebellion to Jesus, and unbelief will be punished. And not with annihilation, like many people in our world believe, or reincarnation, but eternal damnation in hell. And for this reason, John speaks boldly, plainly, powerfully, Jesus is God, with the full hope and assurance of the Lord that men and women will be made to believe this message by the power and will of God, not by the craftiness and deceitful scheming of men who in their own sinfulness decide to choose to accept Jesus into their own hearts, their own sinfulness. This is not a synergistic salvation presented in the text of Scripture. This is a monergistic salvation presented in this text. Salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ who died to save his elect the people of his own possession, whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. One man who was saved by John's prologue was church father Junius the Younger. Junius read John's prologue at a critical stage of his life, and he commented on how it affected him by saying, quote, At the very first view, although I was deeply engaged in other thoughts, the grand chapter of the evangelist and apostle presented itself to me. I read part of the chapter and was so affected that I instantly became struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of the composition as infinitely surpassing the highest flights of human eloquence. My body shuddered, my mind was in amazement, and I was so agitated the whole day I scarcely knew who I was. Nor did the agitation cease, but continued till it was at last soothed by a humble faith in him who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Allow me to ask you this morning, friend. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Have you considered the divinity and the glory of the argument John is presenting? Have you been burdened with your inability to save yourself because of all of your sinfulness? If you do not believe this morning, I pray that the reading of this text perfectly agitates your heart until you believe that Jesus is God, the Christ of God, the Son of God, who took on flesh so that he could face the wrath of God aimed against the sins of his chosen people. You see, you cannot pay God for your sins. No one can pay God off for their own sins. Only Jesus' death in his flesh on the cross was able to satisfy the wrath of God against sinful the, the sins of humanity. And so I ask you, 
Are you a sinner? Is Jesus God? Is he alone your Savior? Have you received from him grace upon grace? Jesus is the Savior of millions who have been given the gift of faith and who now believe in him and know that Jesus is God, the creator of all things, the light of men. And Jesus is that word made flesh, which is the focus of our morning, even for the next couple of weeks as we consider John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 and conclude our time in John's prologue. Pastor John MacArthur says, throughout the prologue of his gospel, John has declared the profound truths of Christ's deity and incarnation, reaching a powerful crescendo in these last five verses. They summarize these verses, do the prologue, which in turn summarizes the entire book, end quote. Pastor John calls these verses a powerful crescendo and a summary. I'd like to just say that this is Christmas in the Gospel of John. We've arrived at a birthday party, an incarnation celebration. Happy birthday, Jesus. That's what's in the text before us today. It is here in John's prologue. I'd like to offer you this outline. John offers six incarnation celebration realities that make us marvel at Jesus' humility and glory. It is here in the text that John presents six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday which reveal the grace and the glory of God. So then what is the first of these six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday that make us marvel at his humility, grace, and glory? Well, we're going to work this like a Christmas unwrapping party, and we'll just take them one at a time. So I'm not going to give you the whole list today. It's not even going to show up in your bulletin next week. You're just going to get point number one. What is the first of these six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday? If you want to find out two through six, you'll have to come back next week. Number one is Jesus' humble incarnation. Number one in your notes, Jesus' humble incarnation. We'll stay here the majority of our time today. The first of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday, number one in your notes, Jesus' humble incarnation. Where do we see Jesus' humble incarnation in the text? Well, you see it there at verse 14 of chapter one where the apostle of love says, and the word became flesh. Edward Clink points out to us that this is the first appearance of the word, logos, since verse 1. And it will be the last time that this word, logos, appears in the Gospel of John. The word is the Greek noun logos, which is loaded with meaning in the minds of Greeks and Jews in the first century. Greek philosophers of the first century, also called Stoics, who taught Stoicism, they used the term logos to refer to the impersonal force or the abstract principle of reason that they believed ordered the universe. They held that the logos was the rational principle by which everything exists. The essence of the rational human soul was the logos. At the same time that these Greek philosophers were spouting these ideas, the Jews had been carrying around the Old Testament for 1,400 years, which declares itself to be the logos of Yahweh, the word of God, the word of the Lord. And so, here, in a stroke of Holy Spirit-filled brilliance, John permanently rebirthed the word logos, entirely redefining it away from the speculative thoughts of the Stoic philosophers by applying it to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is himself the very Word of God. Understanding that Jesus is the Word, the logos of God, is not difficult. In the prologue, John is not making that difficult for us to understand. What is difficult for us to understand are the next two words in our text in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, and the word became flesh. This, friends, is a paradox. It is a, an enigma. It's a conundrum of colossal proportions. How do you reconcile the combination of these words in the text? It seems impossible. Some might say it's inconceivable, and it is. John has already declared plainly, the word was God in John 1.1. And so men and women have asked for 2,000 years, how does God become flesh? It's a great question to ask because the contrast of word and flesh in verse 14 is seemingly greater than the contrast of dark and light which preceded it. Edward Clink says word and flesh are diametrically opposed to each other these words have no business being so closely related and connected with one another, especially as they are being used and put together 
with this verb that has showed up several times before, this verb ginomai, which means to become, to come into being, to be born, birthed, or come into existence. This is now John's seventh use of the verb ginomai in 14 verses, and he has two more uses of this verb ginomai coming in the prologue before we're done with it, which is to say that being birthed is an important concept in John. In verse 13, when talking about our salvation, it is used passively. We were being given birth over, the, the right to be birthed as children of God, passively. This use here in verse 14 is a middle use. The voice is middle. It's reflexive. And what that means is Jesus did this with his own intentions, his own desires in mind. This birthing, this coming into flesh, he thought about this and he wanted this to happen. Consider also verse 12 of chapter 1, where we saw Jesus must give you the right to be birthed again as children of God. That was a joyful thought, that we wretched sinners could be spiritually rebirthed and declared children of God. And so birthing here should not be a problem for us in verse 14. The problem for our minds is the paradox of Jesus being birthed in the flesh like us. If we are those who recoil at the thought of conservatives being coming liberals, or Washington State Cougars becoming University of Washington Huskies, or even tea drinkers becoming coffee drinkers. How much more awful is the thought of God wearing the weakness of human flesh? These thoughts are extremely hurtful to the average, decent, reasonable, regenerate human brain. John McHugh says, Flesh is the most vulnerable, the most corruptible, the most easily destructible part of the human body. In a word, the most impermanent. The Logos, on the other hand, says McHugh, is eternal. He says these two are literally poles apart. The thought of the word becoming flesh is absurd and even to some grotesque. How could this even be possible? How can immortality put on mortality? How can the finite be made infinite? What does this mean? How did it happen? You can't be both a conservative and a liberal. You can't be a cougar in a husky uniform. Combining cold and hot water gets you lukewarm water. How can polar opposites come together without removing or denying the nature, then, of one or both of these objects? Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. To answer these questions, we need to consider the word flesh. Leon Morris says flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature here in the text by John. But he says that John chooses that form of expression which puts what he wants to say most bluntly. Flesh often has a very negative connotation in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 is where Paul speaks of the flesh being weak and sinful. In Galatians 5.17, Paul says that the flesh is engaged in a raging battle against the spirit. In chapter 5, verse 19 of Galatians, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And so flesh is an attention-grabbing word which creates the tension and the paradox in John 1.14. Why would Jesus allow himself to be birthed as flesh? And yet flesh doesn't always have to be profoundly and perfectly negative, evil and wicked. John MacArthur says flesh or sarks in the Greek does not have here in John 1.14 the negative moral connotation that it sometimes carries, but refers to man's physical being. Flesh in John 1.14 looks more like Jesus taking up and donning upon himself the blanket of flesh upon his person. You're in Philippians 2.5, where Paul is exhorting all believers in Philippi to have the mind of humility of Jesus in them when he willingly left the glories of heaven and came to earth in the form of a man. Paul says, verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing that he should hold on to, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, friends, the text says here, Jesus existed in the morphe theos, the form of God, but that he also then emptied himself. This is the kenosis, the emptying of Jesus, which always comes with an incredible question. How does Jesus empty himself? Brothers and sisters, Jesus emptied himself by addition, not by subtraction. Please understand that. I'll say it again. Jesus emptied himself by addition, not subtraction. What do you mean? Jesus' deity did not change at all. Friends, that would be impossible for Jesus' deity to change. What is possible is that Jesus emptied himself by adding to himself the frailty called human flesh. Paul says Jesus took the morphe doulos, the form of a slave, Equally, in direct parallel, John says the word became flesh. Turn back in your, or turn now in your Bibles, I should say, to Hebrews 4, and we'll look at verse 14. Flesh, in our text today, is a potent, unambiguous, comprehensive, and almost shocking word, meaning the whole of the human body, but flesh also does not imply moral failure in the context of John 1.14. Flesh does imply weariness, Pain, misery, and death, which are all the effects of the curse of Genesis 3, all of which Jesus' flesh most certainly did encounter on this earth. In biblical doctrine, Richard Mayhew says, humanness, that is the taking on of flesh, that it involves undergoing, not just encountering what mankind commonly experiences. From the start of his incarnate life until the end of his earthly journey, Jesus experienced, here's the list, are you ready? Birth, growth, exhaustion, sleep, hunger, thirst, anger, sorrow, weeping, compassion, love, joy, temptation, prayer, suffering, and death. Furthermore, Jesus is the first human being to experience resurrection into newness of flesh after the death of his earthly, earthbound, temporary human body expired. And he allowed it to expire, by the way. He could have sustained that rag for as long as he wanted to, but he expired that rag. That flesh was dead. He put, it to, he put it to death. Be assured, friends, Jesus truly did take on flesh. The tension in the text is palpable. It's great. You should feel the tension in the text because the paradox is profound. It is even astronomical. And yet it is not without great significance, purpose, and the highest degree of intentionality on the part of our Lord. You're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, where the author of Hebrews expresses the significance and intentionality of Jesus taking on the flesh when he says, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet found to be without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, being able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with those very same weaknesses that the people under him are. And because of it, he is obligated, just as for the people, to also offer sacrifices for sins in the same way for himself because he himself is a sinner any priest that served the Lord in the temple. And no one takes this honor to himself. No one makes himself a priest, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was called by God. In this way also, Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He, in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, 
Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became, to all of those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Friends, Jesus is our eternal high priest, our king, our savior, and our Lord, because he did the incredible, the absurd, the ridiculous, the impossible, the inconceivable. The word became flesh. Happy birthday, Jesus. The word became flesh. He chose to have a birthday, and a birthday he had. He packed all of his deity inside of that little humanity, even in the form of infancy in his mother's womb, which should be altogether mind-blowing for every single one of us. He didn't go to Mount Spokane and snowboard for his birthday. He didn't invite you and your friends to join him at Chuck E. Cheese or Twig's Bistro to celebrate his birthday. There was no inflatable bouncy castle, and he didn't have Coke, and he didn't have cupcakes. He did the impossible. And for his birthday, Jesus took on flesh and was birthed into flesh. He was made in the likeness of men. He was born of a virgin, to be sure, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not through natural conception. Jesus chose to do life on earth in the flesh, just like us. He chose less glory for himself and more suffering for himself. He introduced himself to this idea and this concept of suffering because this was his path to his greatest glory. What is that path to Jesus' greatest glory? Taking on flesh, suffering the wrath of God for the sins of God's foreknown, predestined, elect sons and daughters. We call this penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus took our place and paid our sins on the cross because we could not do that. This was the only way, the only way for man to be reconciled to God, God had to become a man and live the perfect life and die this horrible death on a cross. Jesus did this because he is God veiled in flesh. He did this in love. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2. Charles Wesley is one who has us sing about these truths so clearly in his famous Christmas carol, Hark the herald angels sing when he writes, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. He says, Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Friends, I never want you to lose sight of the purpose of Jesus' birthday. This is the greatest birthday script ever written because our suffering Savior took on flesh so that he might dwell among us. I ask you the question then moving forward, do all men believe that Jesus took on flesh? What happens if you don't believe that Jesus became a man? Can you be a Christian headed toward eternal life with Jesus if you deny his incarnation? How essential to the salvation is knowing and confessing our text today, the word became flesh. Is there great reason to have doctrinal accuracy when talking about Jesus' hypostatic union? You're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, where the Apostle John is writing the criteria for orthodoxy for biblical Christians. He knows what salvation looks like and the confessions that a truly born-again believer makes with their mouth. John also knows that there are many deceivers out there who would love for you to believe in a false Jesus, even a Jesus of your own understanding. And so John writes in 1 John 2.22 and says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that which you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. 
But as, he anoint, as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie, just as he has taught you, you, Christian, abide in him. John is not done teaching on Jesus' deity or Christian orthodoxy in, here in chapter 2 either. Look further with me at John chapter one, verse, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Beloved, in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming into the world and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The abiding orthodox position concerning Jesus' incarnation is that the Son of God came in the flesh. We call Jesus the God-man because in his person, Jesus is 100% God and he is also at the exact same time 100% man. He is one person and yet he bears two natures. The biblical position has been attacked by heretics for 2,000 years. What bad theology have antichrists, deceivers, and false spirits caused people to believe? What thoughts about Jesus are heretics laying down that easily deceived among us are picking up? What heresies about Jesus taking on flesh has the church been forced to refute for the last 2,000 years? Allow me to present to you eight heretical teachings on the hypostatic union, which were presented and rejected within the first 500 years after Jesus' birth. These are eight errors advanced by Antichrist who did not rightly understand how the Word became flesh. I submit to you first, Ebionism, the Ebionites. They explain that Jesus was most certainly human, but not divine, not deity at all. The Ebionites present Jesus as a great man, a prophet, a good teacher, just like Nicodemus thought about Jesus in John chapter 3. Otto Heck, is, he says this, he's a Lutheran theologian Britain, he says, the religious syncretism evident in this movement was of great historical significance in that it contributed to the origin and rise of Islam as the third great monastic religion of the world. You see, Ebionism is not only the view of Muslims today, friends, but also the view of many of your pantheistic, all roads lead to heaven relatives who come over to have dinner with you, even dinner with you on Jesus' birthday. Ebionism. Number two, Gnosticism. Gnosticism held just the opposite. Gnostics can and do believe that Jesus exists, but only in the spiritual sense, because Gnosticism is built on the belief that physical matter and material and the matter in this world is evil, and all that is good is spiritual. For Gnostics, then, Jesus is a kind of phantom spirit, seeming to appear in a human body or a spirit united with the man Jesus after his baptism, but most certainly was not with him, the Spirit was, on the cross. The Spirit didn't attend with Jesus on the cross. Couldn't be the case. Because the flesh has to suffer. The physical flesh can suffer, but the Spirit can't. That's Gnosticism. Third, I would give you adoptionism, sometimes called modalism. Modalism. It says that God adopted Jesus after his birth and uses Jesus as one of three different modes of his existence. See that? Not three persons in the Trinity... Three modes of existence, three modes of operation. That's adoptionism or modalism. Fourth, I give you docetism. Docetists believe, much like the Gnostics, that Jesus was spirit and appeared on earth as an, as an illusion. He was seen, but he was not a physical being because taking on any form of the material world would be participation for Jesus in evil. So he couldn't do that. Fifth, I give you Arianism. It comes from the teaching of Arius, a one-time elder at the Church of Alexandria in Egypt. Arians viewed Christ as a created being, but they would say that he was the first and supreme of all the created beings. Well, thank you for that. Arians, Arians articulated the position that Jesus was not the same substance as God the Father, but that he was a similar substance. Not the same, 
similar. It comes down to one letter in the Greek, the letter I. It caused a lot of fighting between men. That's Arianism. Let me get to number six, Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. Affirmed the deity of Jesus in full, but rejected his humanity. They say that Jesus did have a human, uh, sorry, did not have a human will and was therefore God just masquerading in human flesh. Seventh, I give you Nestorianism. Nestorianism said that Jesus had a dual personality and was a divided person himself. You had the deity side of Jesus working in conjunction with the humanity side of Jesus, making him two persons with two natures. Nestorianism could not believe that Jesus' deity and humanity resulted in one united person with two natures. And then we come to number eight, Eutychianism. Eutychianism, E-U-T-Y, Eutychianism, was the belief that there was no distinction between deity and humanity in Jesus' person at all. No distinction. He was fully united with the flesh. The two were fused together into a third nature that was neither God nor man, but some hybrid halfway between. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. Friends, the early church fathers, they took great pains to soundly defeat and refute all of these erroneous and failed efforts to understand just how the Word became flesh. I hope that you understand when you look at the evangelical or religious landscape in your world today that the same heresies that the early church fathers denounced in the first 500 years of the church, they're just on recycle. They're just on recycle. And so it is the case that Jesus' church has to stand for the authority of the word of God and the deity of Jesus Christ. We have to know his person because knowing his person establishes the grounds of our salvation. Our salvation is directly tied to his person. Why labor to give you a list of eight false heresies from 1,500 years ago? Because you need to know truth, the genuine article, and the opponents of truth. Arianism was destroyed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Apollinarianism fell at Constantinople in 381. Nestorianism met its match at Ephesus in 431. Eutychianism was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. To be sure, Jesus Christ, friends, is one person with two natures. He subjected the fullness of his deity to the fullness of the frailty that we call human flesh. The human flesh that you and I know and have lived in all the days of our lives. Allow me to read for you the statement prepared by the bishops who met at Chalcedon in 451 to denounce Eutychianism, among other heresies. These men gathered to confirm and commend the following biblical teaching regarding Jesus' deity and humanity, the doctrine commonly known as the hypostatic union. They said in the Chalcedonian Creed, quote, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages from the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers handed down to us. How long did it take to craft that sentence? How many battles, how many fights were waged to craft that statement? How true is that statement? 
Brothers and sisters, this is how Jesus' church has come to understand the Word became flesh. We see the humility in Jesus condescending to earth, stepping out of heaven, taking off his kingly robe of glory for the very purpose of putting on a robe of flesh. We confess that Jesus' deity was never compromised by taking on humanity. We further confess that Jesus' deity did not reject the many frailties of his humanity, but was truly made to experience the weakness of the flesh just like we do, and yet without sin. You're in Hebrews 13. Look at verse 8, which helps inform and guard even our understanding of the hypostatic union. When the author of Hebrews says in verse 8 of chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14. William Hendrickson, he says, the verb became in our text today, the word became flesh. The verb became has a very special meaning in John 1, verse 14. Not became in the sense of ceasing to be what he was before. The word becomes flesh, but remains the word, even God, says Hendrickson. He goes on to say, the second person of the Trinity assumes the human nature without laying aside his divine nature. John MacArthur says, in the incarnation, the unchangeable God did become fully man, yet remained fully God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus stepped down from his throne to save his people. His humility, love, service, and sacrifice in his incarnation cannot be overstated. He had great cause to momentarily withhold glory from himself as he stepped down out of heaven and came to earth so that he might bless us by wearing flesh like us and dying on our behalf. This is high kingly behavior. When a king puts himself in harm's way for the benefit of his helpless subjects. How many kings stepped down and resigned their kingship? How many ruling authorities reject the honor that is due to them? Would you see this happening with Vladimir Putin in Russia? Is he going to step down? What about Xi Jinping in China? Will he step down? What about Joe Biden in America? Will he step down? What about Donald Trump? Will he step down? What king abdicates his elite position? What reason? For what reason would a reigning monarch resign his role as ruler? For what reason? Let me give you a failed earthly reason for a man to resign his kingship. I submit to you King Edward VIII of England. His dad was King George V, who died suddenly in 1936. Edward VIII was declared king of England at 42 years of age. Edward was never married because he enjoyed promiscuous relationships with married women. He became infatuated with one of them at age 40, but never spoke about this two-year relationship that he was having with this woman with his father, King George, because he was fearful of what his father would say about his adultery with Wallace Simpson, a twice-married and yet not divorced American socialite. Their affair was widely known on the pages of American newspapers, but not a word of their affair was known to the British Commonwealth because of an agreement struck between the British government and the British press. Does that sound familiar? As King Edward VIII, he wanted one thing in his life, to have his kingship and to have his adulterous relationship be permanent and marry Wallace Simpson. As you can imagine, the royal family, the Church of England, of whom he would become the head, and the British Politicians in a whole vehemently rejected Edward's desire. He even promised to marry his beloved Wallace Simpson in a ceremony that granted her absolutely no rank and no property in the royal family if he could be allowed to do this. How romantic. But this was rejected as well. And so Edward VIII stepped down as King of England after a reign of 326 days. Not even one year. He abdicated his throne to his brother, King George VI, so that he could pursue marriage to Wallace Simpson. On this day, December 11th, 1936, Edward spoke to all of England in a national radio address. 
And in this broadcast, he said the following, quote, I have found it impossible to carry on the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge the duties of king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Was this the most honorable, humble, sacrificial, and loving move that King Edward VIII could make? What did Edward's fornication and abdication of the throne of England prove about his character? Was he loving or lusting for Wallace Simpson? How well did his lusting serve the people of England? What did his request for a special marriage to Wallace Simpson prove about the intentions of his heart? What do you learn about the character of a man who takes the role of king and occupies that role for less than one year? Is this a man who loved the people? Or is this a man who loved himself? I would hope that your ears can discern from the public radio announcement the only person that Edward VIII loved was himself. He abdicated the throne because he didn't want the responsibility that goes with loving other people. He was a selfish man consumed with his own satisfaction and pleasure. And what we have in John chapter 1 verse 14 is exactly the opposite. Jesus stepped down from heaven but never abdicated his authority. Moreover, Jesus took on flesh to maintain the purity and unity of an eternal relationship with God's elect. Jesus wasn't sexually driven like Edward VIII. Jesus was sacrificially driven in genuine eternal love like a righteous king whose great desire is to grace his people with unmerited, unearned favor, goodness, and blessing for all of us. You're in John chapter 1, verse 14, where I pray the Lord has given all of us here today eyes to see and ears to hear John's birthday message of Jesus. In John 1.14, where he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. The second of six in your notes is number two, Jesus' relational habitation. Jesus' relational habitation. After first considering in John 1.14, Jesus' humble incarnation, point number one in your notes, we'll now look at the second of six heavenly blessings from Jesus' birthday, and we will see that Jesus' birthday is a blessing to all, to himself and us, in number two in your notes, Jesus' relational habitation. We see Jesus' relational habitation in the words, and dwelt among us. How comforting, friends, are these four words. How reassuring is it to know that on Jesus' birthday, he was pleased to come spend time robed in all of the weakness of human flesh, dwelling on a cursed and broken earth with sinful men and women like you and I. I can't begin to tell you the joy that my heart feels and knows when I see that this is the expression that John gives through the power of the Holy Spirit. It allows me to understand that God is not depressed, angered, or saddened with humanity so much that he just quit on us, quite the opposite. To the contrary, because of his great love, Jesus took on flesh so that he could talk to us, walk with us, while we're wallowing around in the mire of our filth, wickedness, and sin. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. It is my sincere hope and desire next week to preach to you the second heavenly blessing of Jesus' birthday, Jesus' relational habitation, when he chose to dwell among us. Inasmuch as I've introduced this as point two in your notes, I'm really not finished with point one. For the remainder of our time today, I want to ask you this question as it relates to both of these two points. We're still in John chapter 1, verse 14. Then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And my mind and heart is captivated with these questions that I will issue to you now, which will consume the remainder of our time. I want to ask you this. Was the incarnation the first time Jesus engaged with his creation physically? Was Jesus only ever perceived on earth as a man starting 2,000 years ago? Had anyone ever come face to face with Jesus 
prior to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem? Before we move on to the second birthday blessing, Jesus dwelling among us and all of the relational joy that is bound up in that glorious thought, I want to consider a few instances out of the Old Testament, which has many instances. But I just want to consider a few of them which beg this question of us as we read these texts. And you look at it and you you have to ask this question. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? We just read and spent the majority of our morning already considering, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator wanted to have relationship, intimately, personally, in the flesh with us on this earth. And that text stands as absolute fact. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem. You're in Genesis 18, verse 1, which demands that we read this text and ask the question of this text, who is this guy? You see, in the text here, we have Abraham and Sarah, and they've been promised by God that she would bear a child in her old age. They have not been waiting patiently on this thought and this promise from God. You remember that they decided to help God out, as it were, and have Abraham sleep with Hagar, the handmaid, so that they could have a child. Not the child of promise, but that he could have a child, a seed to pass on this promise to. Surely this is nothing of what God wanted from them. And after Ishmael is born to Hagar, Abraham and Sarah are still frustrated and confused about God's plan for them because they're not getting any younger and they're really concerned about the child that they necessarily would have if God honors his promise. And so we read in Genesis 18, verse 1, Then Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. He saw and he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth, and he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, and let me bring a piece of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass on, since in such a manner you have passed by your servant. And they said, So you shall do, as you have said. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, hurry, prepare three saves of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to his young man, and he hurried to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before the men. And he was standing by, right next to them, under the tree, and they ate. Then he said to them, then, then they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, there, in the tent. And he said, that's the guy right there. He said, who's this guy? And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, Inside of her own heart, she laughed, saying, After I am worn out, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, there's that guy again, he said, no, but you did laugh. If you're paying attention to this text, Abraham is looking at men, three men specifically. Abraham is not confused about their gender. He knows exactly what he sees before him. He even knows that these men are worthy of his eager attention and honor. He worships these men, and he is not rebuked for that. He offers food to these men, and they accept the food. He suggests rest and cleansing for these men, and they do not reject. These men sat with Abraham under the oaks of Mamre, and they ate lamb together and curds. And then one of them makes two profound, show-stopping declarations about the future and discerns the heart of a woman who he did not audibly hear or physically see. Brothers and sisters, who is this man? Turning your Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verse 24. I would have you remember as we read these texts that only God is worthy of worship. 
Moreover, our God is a jealous God for his glory. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And so who is the man in Genesis 18, eating lamb and curds with Abraham under the oaks of Mamre? It can't be God the Father because no one has seen God the Father at any time. It can't be the Holy Spirit because, da, 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 obviously, the Holy Spirit is spirit. So who is the man? We have here in the text a man eating like a man, resting like a man, prophesying like God and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the human heart like God. Who is the man? Physically seen with Abraham, who is the man? You're in Genesis 32, verse 24, where Abraham's grandson Jacob, this is a couple generations later now, Abraham's grandson Jacob is fearful that his brother Esau is going to take revenge on him for stealing his birthright away from him years ago when they were young men. And Jacob believes that hiding on the other side of the Jabbok Creek will keep him safe from Esau. Had he consulted God about this grand scheme of his to keep him safe? No. Jacob, just like us, operates in his own strength, in his own will, in his own power. This is a failure. Well, what do we read happened, though, that night, on the night that he was troubled, on the night that he relied on his own strength? What do we read happened? What great distress came for Jacob in the night? Moses records in Genesis 32, 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. And he saw that he had not prevailed against him, and so he touched the socket of his thigh. And so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Who just made the request, by the way? Jacob, right? Okay, so you're following along. Verse 27. And so the man who came to him said to him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is in the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Who touched the sinew of his hip? Who dislocated his hip? What's his name? Who is the man? Who wrestled with Jacob? Who has the power to rename Jacob and give him the name Israel and issue a blessing to him over the course of the rest of his life? Who did Jacob say was wrestling with him? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Jacob himself said that he wrestled with God face to face. He declared that he had seen God face to face. Who did Jacob see? Who was his wrestling partner all night long at the Jabbok Creek? Brothers and sisters, he's the same guy who was talking to Gideon under the oaks of Ophrah in Judges 6. The same guy who was face to face with Manoah and his barren wife in Judges 13. The same guy who was standing next to General Joshua in Joshua 5.15, and he called himself the commander of the host of Yahweh, and he said to Joshua in Joshua 5.15, Remove your sandals, Joshua, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. He's the same guy who was seen in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3.25. Brothers and sisters, Tell me the answer. What is the man's name? It's Jesus. Jesus is the angel of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. 
Never did Jesus have a problem, friends, relating to his creation, interrupting his creatures, interrupting their time, interrupting their meals, interrupting their day, extracting from them appropriate worship from them as he saw fit, and personally fellowshipping with them, encouraging them and instructing them. He could have continued to relate to us in theophanies, these divine appearances and encounters on his timing in our moments of greatest need all the course of the days of the rest of our lives. He could have done that. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus chose something far better. He chose something far better than little miniature appearances in your life. Little theophanies, he chose something far better. He chose incarnation and the full human flesh experience. And even more than that, you ask the question, why would he choose the human experience? Why go this route? Do you remember on the night of glory at the last, after the Last Supper that Jesus said something very profound to his disciples? He's been telling them for three years on that night of glory that he must suffer and die by crucifixion, and they don't believe that that's going to happen to Jesus. No way. And so Jesus labors again on the night of glory to make his disciples understand the will of God for God's glory and for their good. And Jesus says to them in John 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? It's to your, what? To your advantage that I go away? For if I do not go away, the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 13 of chapter 16 of John, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak for himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Brothers and sisters, Holy Spirit indwelling is the height of relational habitation for us that we will experience. When God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our sinful, wretched hearts, the hearts of men and women like us, this is where relational habitation is most personally known to us. We don't need theophanies, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. This was Jesus' plan all along, to bless, our, to, to bless us with permanent, abiding relational intimacy with him through his spirit. You don't need Jesus personally visiting you in an appearance. You have his word, and you have his spirit living inside of you. You have everything you need. Truly, Jesus dwells among us, even in our hearts, through the person of the Holy Spirit. But we don't arrive at Holy Spirit indwelling without first the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You're in Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 18, where we learn the best plan, the glory plan of God our Father, the Holy Spirit, and our Lord Jesus Christ from eternity past included the birth of the Creator into His creation. Jesus stepped into human history, not temporarily or momentarily, but from infancy, so that we might see the greatest display of the sovereignty of God the world has ever come to know. What is the greatest display of the sovereignty of God? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's read Matthew's account of that from verse 18 of, of chapter 1, where Matthew records for us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him with a, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pleased with man as men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to this newborn king. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' birthday blessing begins with his humble incarnation. It goes from humble incarnation to relational habitation. He dwelt among us. Application of these truths can be made by arguing from the greater to the lesser. As we look to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, ask yourself these questions. 
if Jesus sovereignly controlled all the details of his physical birth and life on earth, what details of your life are out of his sovereign control? If Jesus entrusted himself to the Father and the Holy Spirit to orchestrate all of the affairs and the details of his life, what would stop me from trusting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in my life, in all of its details? If Jesus came from heaven to earth for an eternal relationship with me, what extreme measure do I take to pursue and strengthen my relationship with him? You'll do well to further ask yourself, how worthy of worship is the God who stepped out of his glory in heaven to die sacrificially for your sins? Ask further, how worthy of relationship is the God who chose to dwell among us, even the one who sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you? Think on these thoughts. Think on them long and hard, and you will have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let us pray. Father in heaven, these truths are incomprehensible to us. This paradox, this conundrum, this enigma of Christ becoming flesh. And we ask, why did you save us? And we ask, why did he have to do this? But the text of scripture makes it so abundantly clear. This is your plan. This is your path to maximum glory for you and to call together a people for your own possession and deliver to us the salvation that you've eternally supplied for us. These truths cause our heart to be set on fire. There is no amount of ice or snow that can hold back the fire and the inferno that is inside of those whom you have chosen and loved and called and drawn to yourself. We experience that this morning as we think on these truths, on these incredible thoughts. Our Savior loved us so much he stepped into flesh. Let us honor him in song now in Christ's name. Amen.